0: Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you have a question for an investor, we have some office hours coming up with some past guests on the show. Please check out the show notes for more details. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Our guest today is Kanye MacGabella. Kanye is one of the managing partners at Kindred Ventures. Kindred is a seed stage venture capital fund whose mission is to back visionary and dedicated founders that want to solve the most important problems and vastly improve people's lives from around the world. Some of their investments include Uber, Poshmark, Otis, and Blue Bottle Coffee. Prior to Kindred, Kanye was a partner at Collaborative Fund and co-founded Heartbeat Health. He previously ran growth at one block off the grid and was an early employee at Doostang. This was an amazing conversation about Kanye's journey, both as a founder and investor, his mission, how he thinks about entrepreneurship, and what he looks for in founders. Without further ado, here's Kanye. Thank you so much for joining me today, especially during these very uncertain times. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you, Mike. I'm um, and pleased and honored to be here. Thank you for having me
0: on. No, it's an it's an absolute pleasure on my end. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, so let's let's start a bit from from the beginning of your career. So what what compelled you to drop out of Stanford? You know, founding Doostang, and what initially attracted you to technology and entrepreneurship?
1: So when I joined. Stanford, it was right after the dot-com bust, and which is going to date me a little bit, but that's fine. Uh, and I always like to, to point to this stat, which is that the number one major at Stanford today is computer science. And of the, call it 1,700 graduates uh, of undergrad in 2019, 300, I think of them, uh, graduated with a computer science degree, maybe 350. Uh, the number two Uh, degree, I think it's human biology, and then four is biological sciences. When I started at Stanford, the number one major was econ. Uh, And the number two major was on bio. The number three was bio. The number four was international relations. The number five was psych. The number six, I think, was general engineering. And then somewhere down there uh, was was computer science. And, And San Francisco and the Bay Area more generally is a boom and bust town, which means that The the tide comes out, and all of a sudden, all the enthusiasm is gone. And so, I I joined Stanford and moved to the Bay Area at low tide, uh, which meant that anyone going into technology were people who were uh, engineers, engineers, uh, or true software people, or were kind of the the gadflies and gadzooks on the margins of society in some way or another. And, And so, I fell into the latter category, and I felt like college at the time wasn't quite a fit for my expectation for how to live a life uh, and how to do identity formation, how to be creative and be a free thinker. And so I uh, got inspired to, to, to take the startup path in part because uh, the, the CEO and one of my co-founders at uh Deustang was at the GSB and was looking for, a co-conspirator who had a large number of facebook friends because facebook was a little bit less than a year old at the time and i had a lot of facebook friends and so i started inviting my facebook friends and their friends the next thing i knew i was doing customer acquisition and product marketing and and performance marketing and all these things and I was in the technology industry.
0: Wow, that's that's cool about how your customer acquisition came from the amount of Facebook friends that, that you knew. Uh tell me a little bit about some of the early mistakes you made as an entrepreneur.
1: You know, I made a lot of obvious mistakes. And the truth of the matter is there's a lot of obvious mistakes that are very easy to make because when you're in the moment of being an entrepreneur or trying to create something from nothing or when you're in a high pressure environment where you need to move fast, uh, one relies on you know lizard brain a little bit and some of the tropes that have entered your subconscious instead of thinking strategically and truly thinking from first principles and trying to you know and trying to do the right thing with more of a rational mindset. And so some of those obvious mistakes uh, you know, at, at our first startup, we hired a, a suite of C, c-suite before we hired just about anybody else. And so we had a very, very top heavy culture. Uh, we had a hierarchical culture um, because it seems to make sense to have hierarchy because when you're high pressure, you try and push that downwards. Uh, we were focused on vanity metrics because those were what got us uh, into Mary Meeker's slide deck. Those were what got us into Time Magazine. And and those seems to be, the the hockey stick seems to be the sort of way that we were able to to continue to create forward momentum around the business uh, we were focused on uh, capital raising as as an input uh, that was indicative of the value of the company rather than capital raising simply uh as a strategic vehicle among many other vehicles to move it, to move the, to move the business forward and so we were Slightly obsessive about capital raising instead of around value creation and focusing on profits and focusing on a return on equity and some of these things which a fundamental business needs to think about. Uh, so we made you know we made a ton of mistakes even at the technology level. Uh, you know we originally built on the wrong stack. Uh, we built you know, we built on a lamp stack in two thousand and six, which in retrospect is is you know is, is laughable. And part of why we did it is because uh, Facebook was using PHP. And so we thought, okay, well, Facebook's working, and, uh, and all the developers that we knew at the time uh, were interested in, in Ruby on Rails and Gem-based infrastructure, and we uh, and we were saying, well, no, we're gonna we're gonna stick with our approach because that's what Facebook uses. And so even in the stack design, you know, we made it was an obvious mistake. And so there's a lot of obvious mistakes to make typically around team. So at the very beginning, there's only two things to do: uh, build and sell. And so hire builders and hire sellers. And builders and sellers are often people who can do the really sort of ungratifying things like cold calling and debugging. And so, uh, so-called management only makes sense if you've got a lot of cold calling and debugging that's already happening in your organization, you have a culture of it. Uh, and similarly, you know, when you think about a stack, you wanna think about a stack that will optimize you to move quickly, that'll optimize for stability, that'll optimize for scalability. Uh, and also that'll optimize for your ability to recruit because one of the most important things to define a startup is it's an engineer ingestion engine can you create a, a, a solution that you know really attracts a lot of high quality engineers right and so building in a stack that's you know that's relevant to to the talent pool that you have access to is super super important and so these are a lot of obvious mistakes that if i were advising a startup today uh which you know i do for a living so i suppose i certainly am advising a startup today but I would, I would start off with those and I'd say, make sure to steer clear of these things. I, I know from experience,
0: right? No, I think that those are some, you know, great points and definitely some like fantastic learnings. I was going to jump this a little bit later, but wanted to, but, but since we're on the subject of hiring and like the approach to be a founder should, should, should think about hiring, you know, I had on Charles Hudson and uh, Kate McAndrew, and they were talking about how, when it comes to investing in distributed teams, it's. Uh, a bit more of a speed bump for investors to get around f- for them to actually invest. But due to COVID and the fact that we're all now r- working remotely, do you think that changed how how entrepreneurs might hire in the future or how investors are even looking at, at companies?
1: Yes and yes. So one of the strange things about COVID and the shelter-in-place provisions that have accompanied it are that there's a few legacy systems or legacy points of view, which most people would have theorized were 10 to 15 years away from being transformed that are being transformed in a 10 to 15 month timeline now. And one of those uh, is the transition from uh, the global technology industry moving from a unipolar to a bipolar to a massively multipolar business. Uh, and so unipolar being Silicon Valley, bipolar being Silicon Valley and, and uh, you know, Beijing Shanghai, and massively multipolar meaning that the Silicon Valley is actually truly a global industry. And I think that that's been a trend that's been making strides over the last couple of, of years, You know, two steps forward, one step back, and that has now really been tugged into the into the present. Uh, and the real reason for that is because uh, a lot of founders who uh, were trying to optimize for talent concentration where there actually are bandwagon effects. And so part of why the Silicon Valley has remained so resilient is you wanna go where there are a lot of engineers. And so a lot of the greatest startups wanna go where a lot of engineers are. And a lot of investors wanna go where the greatest startups are. And a lot of engineers wanna go where the investors are. And so it becomes a very positive re- virtuous cycle. And a lot of people underestimate that dynamic. And I think that talent concentration is probably the most important feature of an ecosystem. And you know, engineer is, is, is the obvious piece of that talent, but it's not the only one. I actually think that it's just so-called middle management Uh, that is oriented around super high growth in a variety of categories. So I think salespeople who know how to sell digital infrastructure, really, really important. I think that uh, product leaders who know how to communicate between engineering uh, and business for, for innovative products rather than for legacy products, really, really important. And there's a high concentration of those here. And so... That, I think, has been pulled to the future, this notion that you're going to actually be able to have a, mul- a massively multipolar world for, for startup and value creation and innovation. The other thing, though, that's happened in the other legacy industry that's kind of getting shook in its boots around this is investors themselves. And so investors don't like to think of themselves as a legacy industry, but uh, VCs are notorious for giving a lot of advice that they never follow. Uh, and one of those things is uh, VCs are sticking to the status quo of how to invest, how to find teams, how to support teams that is really attached to six or seven years prior. And they're always doing that. And so because six or seven years ago, this is how this was done, that's my mental model for how it should happen now. And so that mentality among VCs creates a legacy and a sort of like institutional inertia that I think is finally being broken as a result of shelter in place, just as a matter of necessity.
0: And I talked to Charles about this uh, pre-COVID, uh, so I, I'd, I'd be interested to see how his, if, if his has changed as well, but he said that it's fine if you're located in a secondary and tertiary market at the beginning, but there should be a plan to maybe move to a Bay area or New York, just because of talent, the talent pools in those areas. Wondering if, if you maybe had similar, similar thoughts, uh, maybe pre COVID. And if they've happened to change, you know, everybody's working from home now. And are you pretty open to investing in companies that are located in secondary and tertiary markets?
1: I always have been and I always will be. Uh, And so on that basis, no. Uh, I do agree with Charles and still agree with Charles that being able to get as close to the talent as you can is mission critical. And the reason why is if I am somebody who uh, is considering which company to work for and this company has happy hour and has community and I can benefit from pheromones and also has the flexibility and the sort of the, the, the ability to be creative and the ability to work on my own schedule and the ability to work from home and then another company only has those things but doesn't have any of the community and in-person aspects then the local company is going to have an advantage and if there's anything you want to build as many structural advantages for as possible when you're starting a company it's hard. And so wherever you can build structural advantages, you must. Now, where remote companies and remote first and distributed companies or even secondary and tertiary market companies have had other types of advantages are there are a lot of trade-offs to moving to New York City and moving to San Francisco. Housing prices being one of them, uh, distance from your immediate family should you be somebody who didn't happen to grow up in one of those regions. And then there's also the inflexibility of traditional in-person work culture. And so the ability to be flexible in your work culture, the ability to be in a geography that's optimized for your personal lifestyle, the ability Mm -hmm. to be able to move to a place where you can live in a house that makes you excited every day, those types of things are now advantages uh, that may outweigh the community advantages that an in-person startup would previously have had uh, because people are getting to experience them more. So it's honestly not quite as cut and dry as, tertiary, secondary markets versus primary, A. And then B, what is an advantage versus not totally depends on company culture. Uh, WordPress and Buffer have had, um, or Automatic, I should say, and Buffer have had amazing, amazing ability to attract people because of the advantages to their remote culture. But Stripe and Airbnb uh, had extraordinary advantages for attracting local people because of their community. And so there's so many different uh, trade-offs that one has to consider. And the, I guess you just have to know what your strengths are and lean very strongly into it.
0: So, um, first of all, thank you for that. I think that's something that we also haven't covered for in terms of, um, you know, advantages of remote working that you spelled out and and, and the culture you, you you can, and maybe the trade-offs with culture that, that you can do with everybody in the same room. And I wanted to to also just talk about why you switched to, to the other side to become an investor. So i used
1: to think and this is a bit of a leading comment and so there's a natural fall question to it but i used to think that there were only two appropriate sufficient conditions for being a founder uh one you had a problem that you were uniquely well suited to solve or two you had a problem that you absolutely had to solve you had such intense intrinsic passion for i since now think there is a third path but at the time I didn't have either of those two paths going for me. There wasn't a problem. I felt like I had the right blend of experiences to really tackle uh, with unfair advantages. And I also felt like I wasn't uh, sort of inexorably drawn to any specific problem. I've now come to believe that there's a third credible input for entrepreneurship, which is if you're unemployable. And, and I, I honestly believe it, if you're unemployable. And some of the vectors for unemployable are if you are from a demographic uh, where you're less likely to get a job on the same resume as somebody else. And so there's a higher rate of entrepreneurship among black women than there is among white men in the United States. Uh, Another input on being unemployable is if you happen to think you are a lot more right than the next guy, Uh, if you have, you know, maybe an inflated sense of ego, which oftentimes is a driver of entrepreneurship. So much of why people become entrepreneurs is just fear and ego. Uh, and, and so I think that's that's a, that's a, that's a God's honest, incredible reason. Uh, and then there's another reason of like, you're a little bit too free of a spirit and or had a non-traditional path or some of these things, which, you know, which will predicate entrepreneurship. And so I've now really wide, widened my aperture around why somebody should be an entrepreneur. But at the time I thought, all right, well, I don't have a, and I don't have B. So then how do I support entrepreneurs? Maybe I can support them by, by investing. Uh, And so I was fortunate to to get linked up with uh, with a, a gentleman that was just starting a new investment firm, and I helped him with sourcing and with deal evaluation and with working with some of the portfolio companies, and and then I realized that I might actually have a have a knack for it, and so. So I took the plunge full time after about a year of that.
0: Thanks for spelling out those kind of three different things about how you look at entrepreneurship. I know we were talking before about how venture capital uh, has changed in the past few years. And uh, I remember that you were saying how there's kind of two poles now of either going very, very late stage or going really early. The
1: way that I'd recap our conversation is that venture capital used to used to have a normal distribution uh, like a, a bell curve and most firms were uh, reasonably mid-sized and invested in uh, companies at a reasonably similar stage at entry, and there weren't that many firms, uh, and, and so it was not unreasonable to imagine that. As there became an explosion of firms, which I'll describe a little bit, but also an explosion of startup activity, because of the sort of amazing set of tools that are out there now to allow you to start a company from technical standpoint to recruiting to consulting to you name it, uh, they're sort of moved to a different kind of distribution. And they're moved to a, more of a, of a distribution where uh, you've got concentration around some of the extremes. Uh, and so at the very very earliest stage you've seen an absolute an absolute cambrian explosion of new venture activity and so you've got micro vcs of which there are something on the order of a thousand to fifteen hundred that were created over the last seven to ten years alone and then you've got angels and uh, pseudo angels which have been enabled by platforms such as angel list uh, to run syndicates and then also have been encouraged by the liquidity in the market and a culture around paying it forward by becoming an angel investor once you get an exit that has resulted in there now being thousands upon thousands of options uh, for investors institutional or individual that you can uh, go to at the very very early stage what there's also now been uh, at the sort of late 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 stage in the market uh is there's a realization i think driven by um, wellington and fidelity and t-row price, uh, which we're all traditionally uh, investors that were not participating in, in what would be thought of as venture capital in almost any sense, uh, dipping down into Series Ds, Series Cs, uh, and, and investing in the late stage. Uh, and then, of course, there's the likes of SoftBank, which are doing it too. Uh, and I think that those two things made it such that if you were in the middle part of the bell curve, somebody would pick off a deal before you. And if you were uh, not a big enough fund, somebody would outbid you later. And so you had to either go earlier and smaller and more intimate, or you had to scale your fund up to be able to sort of play the, keep up with the pricing and keep up with the, the chip stacks from some of the bigger players who were entering the market. And so you've seen a little bit of a bifurcation based on that.
0: That's really helpful. So tell me a little bit about Kindred and where you fall into the mix. First Money In. think that First
1: Money In is the most resilient and durable and valuable place in the ecosystem and is our point of extreme passion i think it's uh, resilient and durable because every single company needs a first investor a uh, and b every single investor uh, starts off as a sort of early or a smaller check investor than they end up and so what ends up happening is the first money in category or the very, very early category is often populated uh, by investors who are just getting started. And so they're just dipping their toe into the water and are just starting to build their platforms. And so they could only raise a small fund or people who are a little bit quirky and happen to be passionate about this entry point. uh, And that's a really great place from my vantage point to be competing because you're not competing with big legacy, established, extremely blue chip, uh, funds that have large platforms and very famous brands. You're competing with everybody else. Uh, and so that, I think, is, is a, a great structural feature of, of that entry point. And then the other feature that I think is important is just the impact. You can change an entrepreneur's trajectory to be by being their first check in a way that nobody else can. And so everybody remembers that the first half million dollar investor or the first million dollar investor, every single entrepreneur remembers that. Because that was the moment where they said, oh, my gosh, uh, I'm, now, uh, you know, I'm now operating a business with, you know, with other people's money at stake. And, and that just changes the tenor of it. And whether that's a loan or a gift or an equity investment uh, or, or something else, that, that's a, a very, very, very solid point. I remember hearing John Mackey from Whole Foods talking about when he was getting his business started and he went to the bank to try and get a loan. Uh, to start to start his grocer, and the bank looked at his balance sheet and they looked at his application. And they were like, "Sir, not even on Sunday," and they sent him on his way. And then a couple of uh, you know a couple of weeks later, he found out that his loan had been approved. And years later, he came to learn. That, that banker personally underwrote it for him, and he'll remember that literally for the rest of his life. Right? He's, you know, he's a massively accomplished business person who's who's done so much. And this was before the the Amazon acquisition. But now looking back, he's always going to remember that first that first person who took a bet on him. Right? And so talk about talk about a special place to be in business. And so I think that it's one of the greatest honors and privileges to be able to change people's trajectories by being that first yes. And so I cherish it and want to do it for the rest of my life. That's
0: that's just amazing. And 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 thanks so much for that story. At the first check, of course, you don't you don't have a ton of data. Wanted to know what kind of qualities you think about founders and and just when you're investing in founders and also a bit of your due diligence process.
1: So the due diligence process is totally bespoke to the, the opportunity because uh, there's the different risk shapes, and so the common risk shapes are having to do with the founder, uh, having to do with the market, and having to do with the strategy. Uh, and so on the, on the founder, what I try and do diligence are, A, are they the type of person that other people are going to want to work for? And so I can't overestimate the extent to which being a talent ingestion engine is such a powerful feature of, of building a really transformative business. And so is that somebody who either has an inspirational quirk or has an amazing network of people who are excited about them being a founder, who are willing to take below market rates or are willing to take a risk behind this leader? Uh, so that's first. And I can diligence that uh, you know, in, in first person by asking the person and by understanding them and looking into their psychology. And I can also diligence that by talking to folks in their network and hearing about their past experiences and learning about... What makes them tick and how they've been and how they've been effective in the past. Uh, the next thing I try and learn about is on the founder is whether or not they have domain expertise. And I want to say a thing about domain expertise, which is that uh, if you don't have domain expertise or do, that doesn't mean that you're good or bad or that you're fundable or not. In fact, domain insight is the most important thing. And so a lot of people who have a ton of domain expertise. Are less likely to have domain insight, uh, and if anything, are less likely to bring a beginner's mind and have sort of calcified thinking around how a market is supposed to work. And so, uh, I think about domain insight as as my version of domain expertise, and I try and assess that in the founder, which comes again to the to the quality of you know the go to market. And so, I think that strategy is also pretty underrated. Uh, I think that having really really good strategy is 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 a, is a, is a, a keystone of, of, a, of a business being able to succeed and sometimes it doesn't have to be a very well articulated strategy immediately as much as your ability to create strategy quickly your ability to create frameworks and ways that you create feedback loops that actually close that you can be uh, you know that you can build a learning machine right uh, and so I, I try and assess their strategy and their strategic thinking um, in in one and then on the market side I think about the shape of a market. And so it, you know Peter Kaufman, who's the, um, the CEO of Glen Air, uh and a close friend of Charlie Munger's, uh, talks about how one of Glen Air's uh, approaches is they want to build stuff that nobody else in the world can build by definition. And so they want to build, if something is too hard to build or too uneconomic or too bespoke, then they'll build it. And then they'll charge an arm, a leg, and a foot for it. And that's because they understand that there's, you know, they understand the nature of the elasticity if they're able to build the plugs that connect the supercomputer that's developed by IBM to the enclosure that's con- connect, built by JPL uh, and, you know, in, in a NASA rover that's going to Mars and it has to be a four foot connector and only one company on Earth can build, right? Like that's, and so that is him having a really differentiated understanding of the market shape. Uh, I also think to the point of a market shape, uh, the Coliseum brothers are another interesting example. Stripe is not the biggest payment processor. Stripe isn't even close to the biggest payment processor. Uh, First Data is way bigger. Uh, I mean Fiserv, right? There's, there's, there's orders of magnitude, more processing volume happening among legacy players. And it was a pretty crowded market when they started working on payment processing. But they had a point of view that the shape of e-commerce being developer-led was going to change the entire tenor of the economy. And you look at Again, post-COVID, and you look at the shape of the economy today, and you realize that they had uh, an instinct on the shape of the market that was really, really compelling. Uh, And so I try and understand the shape of the market as is, and then the sort of directionality or the trajectory of that shape changing. And those things become important inputs on whether or not I'm excited about it.
0: I'm glad you brought up how you think about markets and the shape of the market and how it develops. For new markets, how should an entrepreneur think about about a market size if the market doesn't exist yet
1: the addressability of a market uh in my view is to think about leverage and externalities leverage in the finance world is debt um, but leverage in the engineering world is if you pull a lever uh, can you move something of much higher weight than you would otherwise be able to move because that lever uh can can uh you know can whether it's you know, via torque, or just the nature of the lever itself can uh, can move higher away. And the externalities, you know, again, in in economics are the things that happen because of some market activity. but the the layman's way to think about it is uh, like, like what's the implication to regular people or what's the implication to society, or the what could go right? Like think about like write the newspaper article for what could go right, and the newspaper article for what could go wrong. Uh, in the best case scenario of your company. And so on both of those, uh, what I try and do is I try and imagine where there could be leverage. Uh, And so if there is an extreme amount of leverage and a small market today, that's more interesting to me than if there's no leverage, but a lot of dollars already flowing through it. And if the externalities uh, are not that interesting, culturally, and that's actually important, uh, and they're not that um, and they're not that provocative culturally, then I'm also less excited. And so, to the point about what interesting and provocative mean from an externality standpoint, uh, i want to I want to question the fundamental nature of a certain market uh, with a startup if that startup becomes really, really successful. And as I reflect on that question, I'm gonna find myself either emotionally drawn to it or emotionally repulsed by it. And if I am left without any feelings, and somebody else can invest in that business, honestly. Uh, and so that was a matter of preference and taste for me. I think the leverage one is universal.
0: I think that's really helpful. Thank you. We were we were talking before as well about how there's lots of tropes about why something is fundable, and but you were more interested in learning about why something is not fundable.
1: One of the imp- impacts of the last ten years that I'm still trying to digest, but the best way that I can describe is. Startups have become a meme unto themselves. Uh, and which is to say that mimetics are increasingly driving a lot of the intellectual architecture around startups. And mimetics being I'm copying that other person and I'm copying that other person's idea, that other person's point of view, that other person's worldview. Uh, the hive mind rules all today. And so what that means is there's certain tropes that start to become sticky and certain ideas that start to become viral. And those start to enter our collective subconscious as fact. And I think that's happened a lot more lately because of the fact that we're all hyper-connected, because of Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook Angel because of the social network movie, because of the market caps of venture-backed companies being the biggest market caps on Earth. I think startups have become more of a meme. And where that has had a sort of negative effect is there are certain expectations for how to start a startup, and there's certain expectations for how a startup should look. And I think at least some of those are driven by mimetics rather than driven by by truth and driven by fact. And so, for example, this notion that you need to be highly risk seeking to be a startup founder is 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 highly driven, in my judgment, by mimetics. And anytime I do any level of of true research or underwriting into the fact pattern, there it doesn't hold up. I actually think that if I had to choose between people who are highly risk tolerant and risk seeking versus people that were risk averse, I choose the latter every time, because I don't want you to run out of money. I don't want you to go bankrupt. I don't want you to take on inappropriate levels of debt. I don't want you to, you know, for for reasons that are obvious. And so, and so it. So sometimes I think that the, the memes themselves just need a little bit of further investigation, and even this meme of the bootstrap ability of a startup as, as an input on its fundability. I, I Look at Tuft & Needle and Casper. Uh, Casper raised uh, tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars to build the exact same business that Tuft & Needle did. And does that make one better or worse than the other? Not necessarily. And there's a lot of strong views on either side of that. Uh, and so I don't think that bootstrap ability uh, has a direct input on uh, fundability, I also think that the lack of bootstrap ability uh, is not necessarily a you know a, a, a damning a damning detail against a company being worth funding. And so if I can't bootstrap either because of the nature of a business model or because of my personal circumstance, then sure, maybe I should take venture capital and maybe that's appropriate for venture capital. And I think that the fact there is actually a lot more uh, fluid and context dependent than any meme could adequately hold. Uh, and and similarly to that, as it relates to startup teams, uh, there are a lot of companies that have been started and gone on to be quite successful, uh, which were started by a non-technical co-founder that were building in reasonably technical markets. Uh, I know of a number of companies who uh, outsourced their initial version of their app, uh, companies that we've heard of that are at massive scale and that may not publicly talk about it, who outsourced the initial version of their app because the company is more technical. And so this notion that you you have to, and we've funded some that are, that are working with dev shops today, and, and I'm okay with that. I, I've also funded two engineers that are just working on engineering, and that's okay too. And so I think that if you're willing to break free of those tropes and allow yourself to do context-dependent assessment of some of these inputs, uh, you'll find that a lot of these memes don't hold up, and that's what I'm, you know, really, really interested
0: in. Now, are you finding that it's harder to establish conviction in founders since you're uh, meeting with them remotely rather than in person?
1: It takes more time. I felt a little bit because I'm psyching myself out a little bit, and so I'm like, and and I and or maybe you know, it's a little bit of a placebo or a lack thereof or something. Where I think just because I'm not in person with you, this interaction feels a little bit less real with the scare quotes. Uh, And so I'm going to need another more real interaction with you before we finally get comfortable. But I do believe another part of it may be the fact that I'm not getting pheromones. I'm only getting from shoulder up. So I'm not getting whether or not you're tapping under the desk or whether or not you're, you're gesticulating with your arms or whether or not you're fidgeting and how good your handwriting is and all these subconscious signals that are inputs on my comfort. And so it may be that it's in my head and then I'm kind of, you know, wrapping myself up in, in, in knots because of the fact that I'm remote uh, just in idea rather than in practice. But it may also be that there's even biochemical inputs on it that are resulting in my not feeling as comfortable.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Just everything that you're processing.
1: It's even, it's even as simple as like, if you don't make eye contact with me in person and don't make eye contact for a while, I think that that's just how you process information or maybe you know, you might have, uh, you know, uh, uh, you may be neuroatypical in some way. If you don't make eye contact with me on Zoom, are you reading your email? <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's just, it's just different, right? So.
0: Right, right. I I know you invest in B two B and B two C. Wanted to see if there's there's a certain ratio between the two uh, that that you invest in, or just how you, I guess, a- approach your portfolio.
1: One of my favorite. Concepts about what a venture capitalist job is is we are not tasked with divining the future or even predicting it. I've 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 actually cribbed it. I've actually cribbed it from uh, from uh, Kohler and and Fenton that benchmark and and the way and the way they finish that thought is we're tasked with uh, accurately assessing the present. And if I had a better crystal ball, I'd work at a hedge fund and I'd trade or I'd trade the market but I don't know where things are gonna go. Uh, I allow myself to have imagination around where things could go. And I think that imagination is really, really important. Uh, And I allow myself to be inspired by entrepreneurs who know where the world's gonna go. But what I'm in the business of is following entrepreneurs into the future. And so if I meet an entrepreneur who's trying to build a new gaming application after having come from the photo sharing world, and is building a gaming application, and in designing that gaming application, decides halfway through that their internal chat tool is actually probably the most valuable part of their business, and pivots and turns it turns it into Slack. Uh, at the moment where he is pivoting, that should I be investing in Stuart Butterfeld or not, on the basis of where the future is going to go, uh, n- impossible to say. Should I be investing in Stuart Butterfeld because he has a proven ability and a contagious and immediately apparent ability to manifest opportunity? Yes. And so that's how I think about the world. And if I found myself too constrained around how the world should look normatively, I think I would miss out on a lot of opportunities that I'd be excited to, to follow otherwise. And I think I'd actually be setting myself a little bit short because I do think I have a knack for people first and foremost. And I think that people are going to lead us into the future, and I want to find those people.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. I completely agree. Wanted to talk about maybe some consumer trends as well that you're that you're right now focused on.
1: So one of the consumer trends that I'm really interested in uh, is, and this was pre COVID, but I think post COVID is is going to be intensified. Um, is the idea that if you are somebody who is environmentally conscious and is somebody who wants to uh, make a positive impact on the climate and have any appetite or comfort in the apparel or fashion industry, you're dealing with some pretty intense cognitive dissonance right now. uh, Because uh, sustainable apparel, sustainable fashion, uh, is a very, very, very tiny sliver of of what's a double-digit billions-dollar industry uh, that has not fundamentally changed for the benefit of the environment or for the benefit of the changing sensibilities of the consumer uh, at all. And if anything has changed for the worse with the rise of fast fashion, So I do think there's gonna be a change in how people shop for clothing, uh, how they wear their clothing, how they use clothing as an aspirational storytelling around their values. Uh, That's going to be dramatic. Uh, And it's everything from the fact that there have been protests in Southeast Asia where so much clothing is manufactured today because of uh, unsafe working conditions relating to uh, uh, personal protective equipment in the era of COVID to uh the fact that retails you know nordstrom uh is trying to figure out how to move into rental and uh you know and lord and taylor is preemptively uh shuttering all their stores before salts place even comes out because they know and barney's went out of business and so forth and so i think that one of the consumer trends i'm most interested in is is in fashion and apparel because it's a massive industry that just hasn't really changed And it hasn't been one that venture capital has been able to crack particularly well with an exception of Rent the Runway, which I think has done a good job in the business. Uh, But I think it's poised to do so dramatically today. And where I think it's gonna go is we're gonna move towards more of an access model where there's a lot more peer-to-peer and there's a lot more rental, like a lot more peer-to-peer and a lot more rental uh, than there has traditionally been. And so we're looking actively and have made some investments there. Uh, Another category that I think of as an interesting one, I think that there's uh, a functional food movement that's starting to emerge. Uh, and so one of the things that has happened post-COVID is the uh, plant-based foods have surged, their stock prices and, and the demand for them. Uh, and a part of why I think that's the case, uh, even though ironically in the plant-based foods, in some cases it's misguided, is that individuals want to um, be more but they don't want to know where their food comes from. Only they also want to know where their food is taking them. And so they want food that is uh, that you know has real sort of functional health inputs that are that are really that are really um, well described. And and the reason why that's ironic with plant-based food is a lot of it is very processed uh, and is you know it's unclear whether or not it has all of the health characteristics that a lot of consumers are looking for. But we're investing in that. And so uh, adaptogens and uh, natural supplements and ways of thinking about. Uh, food products as as having medicinal qualities is something where I think that there's going to be a lot more consumer interest, uh, and then finally, one that I think is exciting more on the on the software and pure technology side is is we have been trapped under the paradigm of pictures under glass for about 16 years now, or something like that. Uh, and pictures under glass is the only UI that anyone can really imagine. And you and I right now are engaged in pictures under glass, and the vast majority of of consumer technology is consumed in that way, but we have so many other senses, and we have ability to sense via uh, haptic signals, and we have, you know, audio audio senses that are so incredibly tuned and sophisticated and personal and intimate, and and we have olfactory senses that are so intimate. And so, what does it look like to build a consumer and a human consumer a human computer interaction that takes advantage of more of our senses and that takes advantage of more of our Sort of like our our, our sensory capacity. Uh, I think that it's notable that it's about every ten to fifteen years, give or take, that there's a new massive platform that emerges that completely changes the consumer technology landscape. And the iPhone is now thirteen years old, uh, so sometime in the next two or three years, there's going to be an iPhone competitor. Uh, and we've been that's that you know that really breaks the paradigm. Uh, and we've been investing against you know that hypothesis for a while, and we'll continue to. So those are some that I'm interested. In.
0: Yeah, those are some great consumer trends to focus on. Thanks so much for for naming quite a few. I've had past investors talk about the future of apparel and moving towards sustainability rather than you know the current climate of uh, of fast fashion. That's that's also a really good point. Never really thought about that before. About building new interactions using different senses and focusing on different senses rather than just pictures under glass. So, what's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: The thing I would change when it comes to venture capital, is actually not particular to venture capital, uh, but I would change how venture capital's funders allocate. And so venture capital only exists because of other people's money, and it's typically pension funds, endowments, foundations, and there are some other vehicles that, um, that are also insurance companies and other vehicles like that. And the allocation principles and discipline and approach for for these big, big, big institutions uh, is the thing where I think there could be the most innovation that would really change venture capital. Because ultimately, the thing that I think is going to change venture capital the most is if venture capital is more demographically representative of the interests that it serves. And I think that is, if there are more people who aren't already gajillionaires that are investing as venture capitalists. I think if it is people that um, are much younger, people that in theory are much older, uh, if it is people that are black and Latino, if it's people that are queer, if it is maybe most urgent of all women, then I think that technology is gonna be so powerfully benefited because more and more ways of thinking about the world are gonna be rewarded with cash with risk cash. And so, what I would love is a world where limited partners have more flexibility or have more responsibility uh, to put in business emerging managers that don't fit the pattern. And at the end of the day, if venture capital is an asset class which is performed in aggregate a little bit worse than the S&P, then it's pretty low-hanging fruit to take a little bit more risk and try and improve that. And so, uh, I I think that there's a real opportunity there. Um, and and so I you know humbly exhort my, my, my colleague from the other side of the table to take more risk.
0: I agree. I think that there needs to be certainly a lot more diversity in venture capital and also that, you're right, this is the riskiest asset class that you know. folks shouldn't be afraid to take on more risk. So, what's one company that's on your anti-portfolio? Robinhood. And what was the reason why you didn't invest in Robinhood?
1: I didn't get it. I heard a pitch that basically sounded like this. Uh, we're going to present an opportunity to do E-Trade or Scott trade with no fees. And we're going to do it by doing some complex swaps and liquidity pools and financing jargon, And and we're going to change people's lives for the better as a result. I heard that. I was like, what? You're going to what? That that doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> uh, and it's it was funny because it was, an idea being pitched by one of the smartest people I'd ever met. Um, uh, you know, Beiju Bot is really one of the smartest people I've ever met. and I was like, I just don't get it. I don't see why. First of all, like, E-Trade, really? And here we are. So,
0: Totally see it from from your side as well. Tell me about what's your most recent investment that's public and what makes you excited about it?
1: I think it's the most recent investment that's public. Uh, we invested in a company called Cloud Trucks. And Cloud Trucks is a business in a box uh, for owner-operator truckers. And so uh, trucking is one of the biggest industries in the United States, frankly, in the world. It is one of the most common jobs in the United States. And a huge swath of uh, the trucking industry is independent contractors. Uh, And they're independent contractors who own their own rigs or who have leased and rented their own rigs and will just pick up loads off the open market and just drive them. And it's called an owner operated And those owner operators don't get the benefit of the insurance, of the security of load volume, and of the optimization of loads for their income, for their driving preferences, and for their needs that they get from a carrier, but they get all the freedom uh, of being an independent contractor to, to not work for as much time as they want and to not have to worry about PTO and those types of things. And so how do you provide them the infrastructure and the tools to be able to have more income security and to lower the overhead uh, as, as an imp- as an independent driver um, while still having the flexibility. And so this company solves that. And they actually just yesterday announced a partnership with Uber where uh, a lot of Uber drivers have commercial driver's licenses uh, and are out of work today. And they're out of work because uh, Uber's um, ride hailing volume has obviously fallen off the cliff at least temporarily, And there's an opportunity uh, for for more trucks because supply chain and logistics needs are actually being heavily taxed right now and there's not enough truckers out there. And so this company, Cloud Trucks, is enabling you to sign up for Cloud Trucks and start driving with a rider-leased rig, uh, you know, in a in a matter of clicks. And so I'm really, really proud of what they're doing just because it's a very important service today. Uh, that's providing job opportunity and you know a new income earning pathway, but it's also a business that could conceivably be largest carrier with no trucks. And in the same way that a lot of the largest transportation companies and hospitality companies have no uh, real estate and have no cars, we think that asset light, large networks uh, are a really powerful business model.
0: Wow, yeah, that that seems, wow, really impressive. And that's really interesting to hear about the partnership with Uber. And it's great that uh, then more drivers can uh, have opportunities uh, of, for more work. What is one book that inspired you professionally and one book that has inspired you personally.
1: Well, I guess I'm gonna to have to say two books that have inspired me professionally. One is called uh, "The Structure of Scientific Revolutions" by Thomas Kuhn. And Thomas Kuhn is uh, is a philosopher. he's a philosopher of science. and what he talks about is paradigm shifts and the nature of a paradigm shift. And it's a really, really powerful book because it talks about how Newton's approach to uh, quantum mechanics, was uh, you know was adapted uh, by by relativity and quantum mechanics. I'm sorry, re- excuse me, classical mechanics was adapted by quantum mechanics. Uh, but quantum mechanics actually invalidates classical mechanics. It means that Newton was not incomplete. Newton was wrong. And the whole point of a paradigm shift is Newton was right only at low speeds, but that doesn't mean that he was right because in science you either have a theory or you don't. he was wrong. And it was just like such a fascinating way of thinking about what a paradigm shift does for knowledge, and how there's going to be a new paradigm shift that's going to completely reset the frame for how we should be thinking about, in particular, in this particular case, um, you know, a unified physics theory. But in other cases, just thinking about a, a, a framework on the world. And I thought it was such an impactful book and concept. I loved it. The other uh, is is by um, is by an author named Bill Janeway, uh, and it and the name of it, shit. The name of it is currently eluding me. I'm looking at all of my books right now, and so I'm hearing all these other titles rolling through my head. But um, I'll, I'll send it over. I'll send it over in the show notes or whatever. But uh, it is a book that talks about uh, bubbles and how bubbles are not always bad. And we we operate under the intuition that bubbles are bad. And a bubble is bad because it bursts, and it's a sign that uh, stockholders are not being rational, and that these are all bad things. And the book effectively argues that bubbles are the most important productive input on innovation. Uh, Without the bubble that was, we will at all costs build a computer that will allow us to build uh, an atomic bomb before the Germans, the computer wouldn't have been invented. Without the bubble that was, we're going to defeat the Russians at any cost necessary and we're gonna create all the spying infrastructure necessary. GPS and the internet wouldn't have been created. Without the bubbles, Amazon and Google wouldn't have been created without the dot-com bubble. And so Bubbles, because of, the inf- because of the broadband infrastructure that was laid down during that period. And so Bubbles can actually be extremely productive because what they do is they pull you into the future before you're ready. Uh, and that was a really impactful way of thinking about, about um, technology cycles as well. So I would recommend those two books. And it's not really bothering me that I can't come up with its name. Oh, there it is. I actually see it. Okay. Doing capitalism in the innovation economy. There
0: it is. How about, first of all, those two books sound, sound really interesting and really excited to, to add those to the reading list. How about personally?
1: Personally, I think I would mention The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, And the reason why is I think that there is a very important place for mysticism in our culture. And when I say mysticism, I mean belief in the invisible. And and it's a story about these three brothers and one of them is really rational and the other one is a sort of strong-headed the other one's very gentle and mystical and they have all these broad debates about logic and about science and about philosophy and uh and i do think that currently living in a society where it's all about the belief in the visible and it's all about the empirical I think that we wanna sort of bring back the belief in the
0: visual. I think there's something beautiful. Awesome, awesome. Well, really excited to add those to the reading list. Thank you so much for sharing. So my final question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for any B2C founder? Ship your product before it's ready because it's never
1: gonna be ready. And what you wanna do is figure out how to learn faster than everybody else in the market. Because if you can learn faster than everybody else in the market, then you can navigate your way to
0: product market fit better. Love it. Love it. No, that's that's great advice. That's great advice. Well, Kanye, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And, and, and this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike. Take care.
0: And there you have it. It was such a terrific conversation with Kanye. I really appreciate him coming on the show and making the time, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I highly recommend following Kanye on Twitter at KM. You can also visit his website, Kanye.me, to read his articles and listen to some of his other interviews.